0: The Ram Damas Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 4 Deep in the Earth, My Love is Lying, and I Must Weep Alone. McGee, waiting in the sands, watched their every move. Five minutes had passed quickly as Kellogg moved forward and out of view. McGee leaped to his feet. He turned. The others were also up, folding the tent shelter into the packs. McGee waved them forward and sprinted for the cliffs. He wasted no time in getting the advantage, climbing like a wildcat over the rocks. Kellogg's evil face, strong in his thoughts, kept him moving. Despite the heat, the desert was cooling as he reached the top of the cliffs some time later. To his shock, Kellogg and Savard had already crossed the top and were probably going down the other side. He needed to make his move while they were still on the rocks. Because if they reached the open plains, there would be no place for him to attack. No element of surprise. Time was of the essence. He took several gulfs of the nutrient, finishing the container and throwing it aside. Holding the binoculars in his hand, he broke into a fast run, finding the rocks a more suitable running surface than the unstable sands. Strangely, as he moved, he could feel a deep rumbling within the ground. A definite tremor was rocking the desert. But the tremor was short but reoccurring as he traversed the top of the cliffs and reached the far side some twenty minutes later. He had failed. The two men, having descended the other side, were moving on a sloping plain toward the shore. Damn! Damn! he shouted as he came to the edge. He moved out erratically, out of breath and over the rocks. There would be no element of surprise now. He would have to wait until dark to make his attack. Sitting down, he closed his eyes, putting his head to rest on his forearms. The dirt and dust covered his body and was even stuck between his teeth. His weakened condition would make it more difficult. He rested a full 15 minutes. The ground rumbled persistently during that time. The others would be nearing or climbing the cliffs by now. He would have to go back and tell them the obvious change in plans. Through the glasses, he could see the two men on the plains about a mile away from the base of the cliffs. The earth rumbled again as he took his first step back. He longed for food and drink, and a good night's rest. The sun, having moved down in the sky, was not as sizzling as midday. In fact, there seemed to be a slight breeze coming off the water, very cool and refreshing. It was even colder below. I don't object to cool air, said Kellogg, but that temperature's really dropped. Must be a front moving in, guess Savard. I suggest if it rains that we gather up as much water as possible. Front? What front? asked Kellogg, laughing as he pointed toward the blue sky. Oh, you've got all the answers, don't you, General? demanded the doctor. You should talk, doctor. You're about as much responsible for this as I am. I made an assessment. You deliberately jeopardized people's lives. We both made assessments, he replied, as the ground rumbled. There it goes again. Even a man of your intellect should be able to recognize an earthquake, chatted Savard. The sound waves were increasing in intensity. It seemed to be a very unstable region. McGee was walking slowly across the cliffs, having moved several hundred yards. He could feel the stronger shock waves, as well as cool breezes whipping up the dirt and dust all around him. Turning back toward the ocean, he raised his binoculars. Kellogg and Savard were fighting the wind as they advanced. But several miles ahead of him, McGee could see the ocean moving forward cascading over the beach as it headed inland, and with the ground sounding like a churning machine, he ran forward again, trying to understand what was happening. This earthquake is of a very unusual duration, yelled Savard as the wind slapped against his face. Good God, screamed Cal as he looked through the glasses. The ocean had advanced under the plane and was just miles away. The damned ocean! What about the ocean, Savard wanted to know. Savard looked forward, finally taking the glasses from the general. Time to go back, general, he smiled as both men turned and hurried back across the plains. McGee kept his eyes on them and the advancing ocean, and tried to fathom the meaning of it all, and wondered whether the two men could win the race to the cliffs. Then it suddenly occurred to him in all the excitement he had forgotten about Annie and the others. What if the water somehow could reach the other side? He swung the binoculars to the right and scanned the clifftops, Obscured by the slanting cliffs, there was a passageway. Even closer to the ocean, water was encroaching rapidly. Annie's face flashed into his mind. He could see her eyes, moist and red, beckoning him back to the landing site. She had not wanted him to leave. "'Annie!' he cried as he The wind pushed his back as he ran. His thoughts were consumed with death and more disaster. Where on Earth did the ocean stream across open plains amidst a hurricane of freezing wind? He kept running, looking over his shoulder. Kept running, looking over his shoulder toward the advance as he hurried to warn them. And stunned by what he saw, even Kellogg and Savard fighting the moving water on the plain, come to a halt. The sight was completely awesome. The gaseous, deep red curvature of a rising planet capped the ocean horizon. There was no doubt the SRT had not landed on the planet Earth. They were trapped on the desolate, dry regions of another planet, a planet orbiting a much larger companion, a crimson ball four times as large as the moon, with a mass that pulled its neighbor into gravitational bulge that threatened all their lives. McGee, the new situation catalyzing his body, ran over the cliff tops. The pain in his body was no longer important water, restricted by the narrow cliff channel, was pouring onto the desert floor. His optimism, batted by his indifference, was being washed away like the desert sands. The water was less than a mile away from Kellogg and Savard. Both men had dropped their packs and were scrambling for the cliffs, still several hundred yards away. Before too long, they could hear the slushing and gurgling of the ocean river as it moved forward, overtaking them, and they ran like little children at the beach, kicking and splashing the water in desperation. By the time they had reached the first rocks, the level was deeper. Wet and frazzled, they started climbing again. Like a giant swimming pool, the water had not only reached the edge, it was rising right up the cliffs. It was a race against time. I can't go on! I can't go on! Gelf survived from the lower rocks. Kellogg looked down at the rocks. He could see the surging waters just below the docker. The ocean had expanded and the brilliant red planet had risen higher over the horizon. Damn you, Savard! He yelled as he moved down the rocks. You'll get us both killed! The general grabbed the ailing Savard under the arm and, and, bending over, pulled him upward. Helping the doctor, Kellogg moved up the rocks. They were keeping just ahead of the ever-rising ocean water, but the general was tiring. It's of no use! shouted Savard over the roar. No, damn it! No! cried Kellogg. The feisty general grappled his way upward, literally pulling the doctor along. As they moved over and over onto a ledge, the beginnings of a worn metal triangle came into view. It stood alone on the ledge. The sides of the structure were covered with a very strange and very alien writing, worn thin by countless advances of raging water. I doubt we're going to feed the water to the top, said Kellogg loudly as he looked to the top of the cliffs you can, go on without me, shouted the doctor. No, I'm not going to leave you here, replied the general, catching sight of the lettering. Well, you sure as hell can bet we aren't on earth. Why is this here? Kellogg wanted to know. He ran his fingers over the letters. We can't worry about that, cried Kellogg. Then running his fingers along the letters, Savannah had activated something. The entire triangle became a bright magenta glow. The curious doctor, almost forgetting the waters, had reached outward. His hand had disappeared within the light. Kellogg stood in the first traces of water, about six feet away, as Sabad walked into the glow and vanished. Sabad! Sabad! He called to his only contact on this alien planet. The glow was gone now, and so was the doctor. Kellogg walked through the triangle as the water splashed over the rocks. Sabad, where are you? I'll be killed! I don't know where I am, he heard the doctor's voice. In fact, Savard could see Kellogg very clearly on the rocks, but Kellogg was outside. Savard was still in front of a triangle at the end of a sloping, white-lined ramp tunnel. Where are you? I can't see you. I see you perfectly. I can't see you, cried Kellogg, looking into the open spaces as the water covered his boots. The letters yelled Savard. Run your fingers along the letters. The general moved to the right and rubbed his hand across the writing. The waves were sloshing up now, covering him with water, but he hit the right combination. The screen started to glow and he leaped forward like a high diver into the opening. Savard saw him from splashing through, bringing a fair amount of water, and he slid on his belly up the rampway. The ocean rose over the opening, darkening the ramp, darkening the ramp momentarily. All the white lining, all the white lining in response to the lower lighting conditions brightened all the way down the rampway. They had been saved by means of a transportation they could not even begin to understand. Where are we now? asked Kellogg, expecting an answer. Alive, General, said Savard, looking at the water. I would suggest we proceed down this tunnel at once, that water. I get what you're saying, Savard, believe me replied Kellogg, as the two men ran forward into what looked like an infinite supply of glowing white light. When we neared near the other side of the cliffs, clouds had coming off the ocean, and rain was growing heavier and falling. The water had completely filled the desert floor where they had landed. His heart pounded against his chest, he did not wanting to think about what was happening. If they had not reached the cliffs, they would be dead. rushed to the rocks lining the edge they were still alive moving about 30 feet above the waters below barrett barrett he called through the rain barrett looked up waving at mcgee as he waited for Rodstein and annie as annie came up over the next ledge she looked at mcgee on top their eyes locked together through the sheets of rain she raised her hand to wave at him so he would know that she was all right but she was on slippery rocks One foot slid to the side, and she fought to maintain her balance. No! cried McGee, not believing what he was seeing. Annie lost her footing on the rocks, tumbling back over Rotstein and into the raging water. McGee kicked off his shoes and ripped off the fatigues. But from almost a hundred feet above the ocean, he dove through the pouring rain. His feet smacked into the waves, and he went under in the cold water. He fought his way to the surface the waves tossing him around as if he were a tiny grain of sand McGee! yelled rotstein go back to the rocks i can't even see her shouted barrett as he came down to the edge and tried blocking the heavy spray as he looked below we have both killed rotstein screamed both men had to retreat as the water smashed over the rocks they could see mcgee fighting to stay afloat in the treacherous sea He called Annie's name over and over again as the waves literally crashed over his head. And then he saw her. She was about 20 yards away, bobbing up and down in the water. He swung his arms through the water, swinging wildly toward her. But the extraordinary current was carrying them both parallel to the cliffs. Annie was only a few feet away from his reach. Her hair brushed over his hands several times, only to have the mighty sea tug her away. McGee grabbed through the air. McGee grabbed through the air as a wave crest swept him forward. He pulled her by the hair and then cupped his arm around her chin. Now he had to bring them both back to shore. By this time, Rodstein and Barrett had scurried all the way to the top. They ran down the length of the cliffs, now soaked by the rain as they tried to keep up with the current below. McGee, almost ready to go under himself, was losing the battle with the sea. It was only another wave, taking them in tow, that brought them sailing toward the rocks. He took the blunt end of the crash on his shoulder and arm. He pulled their body upward and over the rocks. When he tried lifting her, his arm felt as though it had been torn out of his socket. Watch Stephen Barrett hurried down the rocks, and the three men dragged Annie's limp body up the rocks to the top of the cliffs. Lightning bolts zigzagged through the low, green-gray clouds. The resulting thunder sounded like a cataclysmic warning throughout the cliffs as they set her body on the ground. McGee looked at her lips, swollen and blue. In desperation, he began an attempt to save her. Come on, Annie, come on, come on, Annie, he cried as the rain pelted him. He breathed into her lungs again and again. McGee, McGee, began rusting. No, no, he said, breathing once more. He stopped and listened for a heartbeat. "'Damn it, Annie, start breathing!' He pounded on her chest furiously. "'Annie, you can't die! You can't be dead!' Rothstein put his hand on McGee's shoulder, and both men pulled him to his feet. Again, the lightning flashed brutally over the landscape. "'You can't help her, son! She's gone!' said the senator. "'No! No! She's not dead! No! No! No!' he screamed, and he bent down again. He breathed into her lungs over and over, But Annie Sinclair was not coming back. Death was looking Harry McGee in the face. He was confused and unable to accept something so sudden, so final. McGee, his hair drenched right down to his skull, slowly rose from Annie's body. He ran several steps in the rain. Then he stopped and raised both of his hands to the eerie sky. No! he howled into the thunder, shaking both his arms and his head like an animal suddenly thrown into an inescapable rage. No! He continued, clenching his fists at the ocean. Why did this happen? Why? Why? He asked again as he turned toward the two men. Then he looked up at the clouds. What is this place? We're sorry, McGee," said Rusting loudly as they came over to him. Sorry, sorry for this whole damn place. Get away from me! Get away from me! He shouted madly. Just get away! The two men, not wishing to provoke him any further, acceded to his demands and stepped back. They watched the pathetic. They watched the. They watched the pathetic sight as McGee knelt over her body. He put his hand on her chest and cried unmercifully. She never had a chance, said the senator. I think she was dead when she hit the water, said Barrett, as they watched McGee. Add that to the rest of the casualties. The clouds were beginning to dissipate. The rain had stopped as the setting sun shined upward upon the cliffs. The water had reached the limit, the waves smashing about 15 feet below the top of the cliffs. Their relief was overshadowed literally by the huge planet sitting above the ocean. Both men looked at each other. Now they were sure. Thought we... I thought we were... Began Barrett. So did I, Mr. Barrett. I thought, despite all this, we'd arrive back on Earth. Clearly, we haven't. How in God's name do we survive now? Asked Barrett. Finding a way out of this desert and back to civilization was almost an insurmountable chore. But to be on an alien planet, alone with no possible food, was hardly, in Pete Barrett's mind, worth living at all. She may have been the lucky one, observed Rotstein as he gazed upward. I had my life so neatly planned barrett next year i'd be in the primaries conventions and i would become president of the united states now i'm reduced to nothing an insignificant little speck within time and space on some distant planet with just enough time left to die barrett could say nothing his wife now across time in one direction or the other was now back on earth his wife now across in time one direction or the other, and back on earth, came into his mind. She was in the kitchen over the holidays. All the kids were home from school. They were all in the living room, opening up the presents, his wife and family. All that he knew, gone. This is insane, yelled Rothstein, finally snapping as he went over to the rocks. Insanity, he repeated loudly. Tears rolled down Barrett's face as he moved closer to McGee. He stood over him for the longest time as McGee just stared at Annie's face in the projected sunlight. It's all over. We're all dead men, just like Kellogg and Savard, said Barrett. Thought I told you to get the hell out of here, Barrett. Don't you understand, McGee? We're on some alien planet. I understand, said McGee, his teeth bared like a tiger. Just where are we, goddammit? Then you know how lucky she was to die. We'll all be dead as Gee grabbed the pudgy Barrett by the collar and pummeled his fists into his jaw. Then he shoved him to the ground. Just get away from me! Get away from me! The clouds were gone, but the gaseous red planet loomed high over the ocean waters, its heightened light rippling like blood in the waves. There were stars in the sky, stars with no discernible pattern. McGee stood bathed in the planet's light over a mass of stones and loose gravel. The surf would continuously crash against the rock cliffs. Tears dripped down his unshaven face as he remained transfixed on the makeshift grave. He had trouble controlling his breathing, inwardly cursing the planet as he tried to speak. "'Stand this place!' he shouted into the night air. He glared at the humongous planet in the sky, shaking his head in anger. It was as if he held a personal vendetta against that planet itself. He turned away and looked back at Annie's grave. You wanted what I wanted. You hoped what I hoped. You dreamed my dreams, he said through the tears as he knelt. He gently ran his fingers over the volcanic texture, somehow reaching through her for the last time and then almost inaudibly he choked up in his final farewell. He rolls like a military man turning abruptly without looking back. Barrett and Rothstein were in the distance deliberately staying away from him. He moved forward motivated by reasons he could not understand because now he was trapped on another planet with little chance of survival given a future that called for no more elaborate plans or optimistic whims. Yet despite it all Harry McGee trudged ahead into the night light years and millenniums, away from everything he had known to be true. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ram Damas Kingdom, Who is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.